Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! Ain't no party like a two-party system. It's election shock therapy. Voters <laughs> competition. Wow. Good afternoon, guys. Wow. Oh, good afternoon. Chris, yeah, it's never a dull opening with you, my man. <laughs> That's true. It's true. <laughs> hey, so I'm sitting here in my um, stuffed animal army um, here in my uh, distributed ops office. Um, uh, where are you guys at? I'm in my bedroom. <laughs> Which is a marked improvement from creeping outside the library last time we podcasted. That is true. That is true. And That's that Andy still, Bramson, by the way. And Matt yeah. Cookin, where are you? Uh, I am still in my office. I'm not quite sure I've really left it much in the past. I was going to say, have you left since the last time we talked? <laughs> to sleep. Okay, good, good. That's some you good. look like you've shaved at least a little bit. I, I'm basically down to shaving the neck like once a week. Um, so the yeah. motivation is is definitely at a, at a low. I thought about doing like the no shave like November, but like no shave like coronavirus nope. edition. We'll yeah. See. Sam looks very clean shaven. Sam, where are you <laughs> yeah. at? Uh, I have actually moved from the Bethel Writing Center to, I've moved to operations here in my actual office. You probably can't tell this, but I actually have a bank of lights here to light me a little bit better. Um, I have a whiteboard back here now. So what, cause I've been tutoring students. So mm, wow. I've shed some light on the whiteboard. So yeah, if you guys need stuff written down, I'm ready for you. Did you buy All a right. ring light, Sam? <laughs> No, actually, I have a lot of lighting rigs in my office, so I just decided <laughs> to turn some of them on. Nice. So here's my question for you, Sam. Uh, as the person most likely to have seen someone who is not a family member in the last few days, mm -hmm. what's it what's it like greeting people in the hallways at Bethel? Uh, you know, the the people I've seen more are the folks from FACMAN. Like they came by to take uh, food out of people's offices that was that were left here before spring break. Um, they came by to empty the garbages once. So like, it's always this strange thing of like, I'm here and you get this look like, why are you here? But they also don't want to interrupt you because you're working on something. So sure. it's been, it's just been strange and at a distance. Yeah. Yep. No words were exchanged. Um, are you wearing masks? Uh, no, no, not Okay. Here. All right. There's just, I mean, this is like being on a space station. Like, I talk to you guys. I mean, one of my favorite movies is 2001 A Space Odyssey. I feel like I'm on a mission to Jupiter now because mm -hmm. I interact with people this way, but I could walk around this whole campus and I won't see a soul. Wow. Not wow. that I'm walking around a lot, but like, there's just nobody here. Right. Yeah. Right. It makes summer seem populated. Mm. Wow. It's uh, it's not summer. It snowed here in Maple Grove today. Oh snowed gosh. a lot yesterday. Yep. Yep. Uh, we're, this is the we've had a mild winter by far, but this was sort of the the last dying gasp of winter, I think. Um, which I'll say, <laughs> which I'll say until it snows in May. But um, all right, so that I has see happened. That, I see that we're all effectively social distancing. Um, you guys know who else is going to have a much easier time social distancing now? Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders. Um, he is ready to social distance. Um, he's out of the race. Uh, somewhat surprisingly, at least to me, uh, he he uh, ended his campaign this last week. 
We almost yeah. did an emergency podcast, and then we decided that this wasn't that much of an emergency. Um, <laughs> guys, uh, were you surprised that Bernie dropped out when he did? I think the timing surprises me a little bit, um, but it's not a great shock in the sense that he's done. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, uh, he was going to have to win 60% of all the remaining delegates um, moving forward uh, to basically uh, tie Joe Biden at the at the um, convention. And yeah. that was just an insurmountable task. Right. So he was going to lose. But it is surprising he dropped out, I think, when he did. Like, why not earlier? Why not later? I think is, a, is the right way of asking that. Matt, do you have a sense of why that might be the case? Well, I think what's more interesting is not so much the timing or that he suspended his campaign, but how he went about doing it um, was mm. very interesting. So in his video, um, he didn't, you know, he didn't really say in so many words that he's dropping out. He's like, I'm going to, he said, I'm going to stay on the ballot in all the remaining states. We're going to continue to collect delegates. Um, he didn't actually endorse Joe Biden outright. He said he would work with Joe Biden, but there was not an actual sort of usual endorsement and saying, you know, I'm throwing my delegates behind you and I'm asking people to vote for, for Biden. Um, he said he's going to continue to collect delegates so that um, in the Democratic National Convention, um, he will have a sizable chunk of delegates, delegates that um, he and his team can use to help sort of reshape the Democratic Party platform uh, to make it more progressive or more liberal. And in the meantime, to also put more pressure on Joe Biden to continue to um, adopt um, policies that are more and more liberal. Um, and this is going to put uh, Mr. Biden in an interesting position. Uh, because typically at this point, the presumptive nominee, once everyone else has dropped out, begins to pivot towards the center um, and begins to try to go after the more moderate or independent voters, um, because that's who you really need to push yourself over the edge, so to speak, and winning in the Electoral College in the key states. Um, but that has become more difficult for him now. So now he kind of has this choice. It'll be interesting to see if he can do both things simultaneously. One hand, he needs to have policies that are leftist enough that will keep the Bernie Sanders supporters um, behind him and ultimately get them out to the polls. But he can't go so far left that he alienates the moderate independents. It'll be interesting to see if he's actually able to, to pull this off in November. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I should say that there's been pressure on Bernie Sanders as well uh, after that initial somewhat sort of tepid uh, not endorsement of Joe Biden yesterday, uh, Sanders offered a full-throated endorsement of Biden. Right. So, so Sanders has now in, endorsed Biden, and Biden has reciprocated magnanimously, I guess I'll put it that mm -hmm. way, saying that we need Bernie Sanders. I think the quote was, we need Bernie Sanders not just to win this election, we need Sanders to govern. Um, not that Sanders himself needs to be needs to be governing, but that we, he needs Sanders, his ideas, and his coalition as part of a governing strategy. And um, that's clear outreach to Sanders mm -hmm. supporters. And um, how much leakage do you guys expect here? Are there people who were excited to vote for Bernie Sanders who will stay home because Joe Biden is the nominee and just not vote? Or even maybe more dramatically, are there Sanders uh, voters who will cross the uh, party line and vote for Trump instead? I mean, I, yeah, I think there's some, but I don't think there's a. I don't think it's a big group. Um, I think the the non turnout is the more interesting question, and I, mm. I don't know. It's just so hard to assess. I mean, my guess is, you know, if you're serious about voting, um, you're you're generally going to turn out um, for Biden because you're probably 
not very happy with Trump, but um, it's, yeah, it's really hard to say at this point. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Um, I think the bigger, the bigger issue is going to be um, those sort of Sanders supporters um, who are so gung ho about Bernie Sanders and leftist policies that they're not just excited enough about Joe Biden because they perceive him as being, you know, not a true believer and as just being sort of a guy who's just, you know, becoming liberal because that's, you know, his to his advantage, or perhaps they think he's just he's he's washed up, he's too old, he's not an effective right. communicator, unlike Sanders, who's still very sort of mentally spry. Um, so yeah, you could get some people sort of staying home, perhaps, despite the fact that um, that Sanders has, you know, given a full-throated endorsement of Biden. At the same time, uh, hatred of Donald Trump runs very deep and very broad. <laughs> and I yeah. tend to think that the vast majority of the people that support Sanders will come out to vote for Biden. Um, there will probably be some exceptions, especially amongst uh, the younger crowd. Um, that would be that would be my guess. Um, but they're always kind of iffy to come out to vote anyway. So right, right. I mean, if you think back to 2016, right? I don't think that's what killed Hillary Clinton. I don't think it was the lack of Bernie Sanders voters turning out. Right? It was more a failure of organization, a failure to mm -hmm. mobilize certain key constituencies. Um, you know, particularly underperforming with the African American vote. Right? I mean, so things like that. Um, and those weren't, none of that was like Bernie Sanders core groups. Um, so yeah, I'm skeptical. This ends up being a huge problem for Biden, but we'll see. There are, um, at this point, a 538 is suggesting the election is not dissimilar from the 2016 election. Uh, Joe Biden right now, a lot of things can change between now and November. So don't take this to the bank in any kind of way. Right. But Joe Biden has about a six point lead over Donald Trump amongst likely voters. And that lead is much smaller in what were the sort of battleground states of 2016, where he only has about a 2% lead, which is, or a two-point lead, which is not that different from what Hillary Clinton had. Right. Uh, so it's well within the margin of error that Donald Trump yep. could win an electoral college victory while losing a popular vote, much as he did in 2016. Mm -hmm. um, but again, lots of things could happen between now and oh, yeah. then. And we have an even more chaotic electoral map than typical because not only do we not know what the recession, the fourth, the almost certain recession uh, will do to Donald Trump's electoral prospects. We also don't know how people respond to a presidency dealing with a uh, pandemic type crisis. Right. And um, we don't even know what the turnout will look like if it is itself affected by the pandemic. Right. Right. So yeah, all those there's things. A there's a lot more uncertainty than there usually is. So, yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, speaking of that uncertainty and trying to resolve it, um, we weren't going to talk about this initially, but I, I, I guys, I can't let this go. Um, <clears throat> Donald Trump uh, is getting into um, heated debates with um, various uh, state governors across the United States. And there have been different groups of governors and different governors responding very differently to the coronavirus um, mm -hmm. in a in a humorous way. I just have to tell you this. This is not – I didn't even tell you this in the, in, uh, before we went online, but um, Governor DeSantis of Florida has just declared that professional wrestling counts as essential work um, in Florida. <laughs> oh, yeah. So professional wrestlers can continue uh, their, you know – Wow. Their God-given work uh, they're, <laughs> um, uh, in Florida during uh, the coronavirus. Um, I, I had nothing. It feels like an area where it would be hard to socially distance. Um, I, would, 
I would think so. I would think so. But you know, I just, yeah. Wow. So, wow. but on a more serious note, um, a number of state governors have went, have been way out in front of the federal response uh, to coronavirus, uh, notably um, uh, New York and Ohio, even our own Minnesota has been sort of uh, in excess of the federal government in terms of, of shutting things, of shutting down schools, of closing public facilities, of limiting public meetings, um, and, and those kinds of provisions. Donald Trump has a real motivation to get the country's economy going again, not just for economic health, but also for his own electoral prospects. Yep. And he has um, run into to basically uh, governors are starting to form um, uh, compacts. Uh, there's a Western governor's compact of basically <laughs> California and Washington. I think Oregon's part of it's the coastal states and a few others. Yep. Um, who are sort of coordinating their coronavirus responses. And there's also an Eastern Governor's Compact uh, with New York and New Jersey prominently amongst them. Mm -hmm. And um, these have rankled Trump uh, because basically uh, they're holding on to some of their social distancing and closure recommendations, even right. as he is assembling a Reopening America Task Force, uh, which includes Steve Mnuchin and... Um, uh, Robert Lighthizer and Ivanka Trump and and Jared Kushner um, <laughs> to get the uh, to get the government back open again, and so that led to this following exchange uh, with at, with Donald Trump at a uh, White House briefing on the coronavirus. He said, "Quote: The federal government has absolute power in reference to reopening uh, the United States following the coronavirus shutdown. Absolute power. Um, this has been a real head scratcher for." frankly, anyone with a pocket constitution. Um, so <laughs> yeah, Matt, I have to ask you, uh, is there any kind of basis for this claim that the federal government has absolute power in this kind of situation to override state law and state statutes? <laughs> I mean, seriously? <laughs> uh, <laughs> No, I mean, it, this whole thing's absurd um, and, yeah, and ridiculous yeah. on the face of it. Um, and uh, that's something I think uh, Democrats and Republicans can agree to. And it's it's very Trumpian. Um, it's it's it very much in keeping with Trump's sort of um, tendency to be enamored with authoritarianism, um, at least um, in other countries mm -hmm. and with authoritarian type statements. Although mm -hmm. um, his actual tendency to institute authoritarian authoritarian practices, um, you know, actually is, is not very great. Uh, no. But he definitely um, is saying some things that are that are deeply problematic. It seems mm -hmm. pretty yeah. clear. So yeah. I mean, there's, so. A, there's a huge irony here, right? Which is that um, so, you know, he's the he's the president from a party that's all, always been about states rights and about limiting federal power or international power. Um, and in one sense, he's completely contradicting that. And yet in another sense, right, I mean, perhaps nothing could have mobilized this so effectively and gotten governors of all stripes, Republicans and Democrats, on board with sort of, you know, yeah, actually we need the power of subnational government. So in a weird way, he might be accomplishing kind of traditional re Republican positions by playing the devil's advocate, by making everybody push back against him. I mean, it's just a very odd episode in some ways. Yeah. Now, I, I have to say the the response from congressional Democrats, I did a quick search. This just happened, by the way. This is this was relatively recent. Yeah. But Democrats have been kind of quiet. And I'm sort of picturing people like Schumer being like, shh, shh, 
hold the line, just hold the line, just like <laughs> let, let's just let this happen. <laughs> Whereas uh, the strongest correctives uh, have been from other Republicans. So Liz Cheney of Wyoming, uh, Dick Cheney's daughter, but also um, representative from Wyoming, has has come mm -hmm. out and strongly repudiated uh, the president's notion that the federal government and specifically the presidency has absolute power. Uh, to um, uh, to act in this situation, um, and, and others ha have as well. But um, this is, uh, I, I'm wondering if this doesn't reveal a tension inside the Republican Party. We know there are deep divisions and tensions inside the Democratic Party between sort of its neoliberal uh, wing, represented by Joe Biden, its progressive, even Democratic Socialist wing, represented by people like Elizabeth Warren and, and, and Bernie Sanders. But there is this this notion of this governance division inside the Republican mm -hmm. Party between sort of small government, states' rights, uh, limited federal imposition, and really kind of the wing that Donald Trump represents, which is uh, the imperial presidency. And there were there were people inside the Bush administration, going back to the invasion of Iraq, who argued that the president has broad, expansive powers, uh, right. much uh, um, much in excess of what the Republicans have typically granted. Uh, yeah, although. I think we should maybe differentiate between even those advocates of the imperial presidency with regard to broad foreign policy powers who would also say that, no, yeah, the, the president doesn't actually have complete authoritarian power over state governors, right? Yeah. I mean, let's let's not right. conflate that. I'm, right. I, mean, I think what Trump said is is completely outrageous and unconstitutional. Right. Yep. And but to be honest, I'm less worried about that. I'm more concerned about what some governors are doing, for example, mm -hmm. um, Governor um, Whitmer in uh, Michigan, for example, right. um, instituting some really draconian um, sort of policies that basically you, you, you might even get arrested for walking across the street um, at like that level of, of control. Right, I mean, yeah. you can't even drive um, from your own residence to an in-state cabin that you own. Mm -hmm. without committing an actual crime and that can be punishable with with i think jail time so which is just outrageous right so yeah. so there's yeah. trump yeah. who's saying things that are outrageous um and then there are actual governors who are doing things that are sort of towing the line of of a kind of sort of soft authoritarianism so I, i'm worried yeah. about both but i'm really more worried about what some governors are doing yeah, well, it's it, more difference on the ground for sure yeah 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 i, I have a lot of um, friends from Michigan. I did my undergraduate in Michigan. And so um, it's been interesting to see their reactions to this. And one of them has been sort of, you know, um, grudging acceptance of Whitmer's pretty, ex like you said, expansive, um, uh, restrictive uh, uh, rules um, in social distancing, but also real confusion because the rules are fairly arcane. And even sort of the cabin rule, for example, there are provisions that if you basically live close to your cabin um, and it's another property that you can attend it. But if it's a long distance travel to a vacation home, then that's prescribed. So there's, it's, it's really unclear kind of how people are supposed to act in those kind of situations. It was not clear. For example, it seemed as if at one point um, 
lawn care was considered essential work, but mo- but doing your own lawn care might itself be problematic. Um, so there's just a lot of questions yeah. about what was actually yeah. permitted or not in Michigan. Yeah, I mean the the rules and the rollout of them is just it's just asinine, honestly. I mean, if you think so, like so stores can sell lottery tickets if the stores are above a certain size, but they can't sell other sorts of necessary items, right? Because right. lottery tickets can they're taxed, right, and they provide real revenue to the state. Sure. So there's just sure. a lot of nonsense like that, um, which is um, which is just really unfortunate. So. Yeah. 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 And even in our own state, and we've had very, you know, low level concerns about abuses. I mean, nothing like that. Um, but you know, like that there's been some people who are getting arrested for other things or pulled over for other things. Mm-hmm. And then having like this tacked on as in you're violating the kind of Walls's rules. Right. And so they're already, the ACLU has raised those concerns here. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's only a handful and we've had maybe a couple dozen of these cases. Right. But, but it is a concern. I mean, how, how are you using this authority? Right. Yeah. Yep. So, Walls' response, by the way, to the Trump thing was kind of great. Great Minnesota, or classic Minnesota nice. He was just sort of like, well, you know, I'm going to work with anyone who wants to try to bring this to a close because that's all of our goals. <laughs> there you go that's very politic of you my 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 favorite um executive uh misusing their time or using their time inefficiently shall we say is apparently Lori lightfoot the mayor of chicago has taken to driving around chicago neighborhoods and yelling at people to go home um (laughs) which i commend her for outreach i guess no. uh maybe not the most efficient use of her time in a city of 12 million people yeah. um it's okay. also interesting just since we're talking about like these spats between you know the federal and state level is you get these spats between like local and like governor level um administration as well so um so apparently and i know about this because my wife works in commercial real estate now and apparently there's been this sort of spat um, between sort of the the mayor of Austin, Texas, and the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott. Um, I can't regarding... believe that would happen. <laughs> Sorry. I know, right? So, you know, Texas is fairly red, but Austin, the state capital, is fairly blue. And basically the, the, the mayor of Austin, blanking on the name, um, basically wanted to end sort of all, all sort of... Uh, construction basic or put a hold on it in the city of austin uh, all the counties surrounding austin and all the other major metropolitan areas still had construction going but they wanted to shut down construction within austin proper um so they so the mayor issued an order and then like within like a day um the governor basically issues an order saying that there shall not be any orders in which you know construction is is, is shut down, um, basically overruling. And the mayor has to come back and just sort of grudgingly say, like, "Okay, we'll go along with it, fine." Um, yeah. So you get some interesting wow. spats between your local and, and state level um, um, governing authorities as well, which is just um, fascinating to watch. Oh, I'm sure. I, this makes me curious, uh, Sam. You're our reporter at Bethel. Uh, can you tell us, is construction on the Science Center still continuing? Yeah, it's, it appears to be that there's, uh, I see that that's the people I see on campus out my window going towards that building. Seems to be there's construction going on there and uh, other other stuff like that. Yeah. All right. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I heard uh, they're still planning on opening it for fall. So. Well, it will be the most disinfected building that we have. So it seems that's to make true. some sense. Yeah. Um, I'm a, 
I'm, I'm, I'll just say this. We'll get back to politics in a second. Um, I have heard that schools um, on the East Coast, specifically, the Boston Globe is reporting that BU, BC, Harvard, and MIT are all making plans, contingency plans, for what it will look like to have a fall semester without students on campus. Wow. Um, and, and if that, I mean, that, that's easy for Harvard to do. Harvard could operate right. without students, or Harvard could operate without charging tuition, um, and they would lose about 9% of their annual budget. Um, uh, most schools, like Bethel, cannot do that. And um, so that's a much more high-stakes proposition for lots of schools. Right. Um, but we come back to that in, in, in future episodes, perhaps. Uh, what I want to uh, transition to is we could have alluded or I alluded to the fact that uh, in the United States, we have these two major parties, Democrats and Republicans, but there seem to be some significant divisions within them, right? Whether it's the progressives versus the neoliberals in, in the Democratic Party, uh, there are different sort of wings of the Republican Party. We often think about sort of like big business versus uh, conservative evangelical Christians uh, and, and other uh, sort of nationalist organic groups uh, inside the Republican Party as well, sort of uh, each articulating control. In other countries with other kinds of governing systems, all of those different groups might be their own political parties. And in the United States, we don't have that. So we thought we would do, um, especially because the election itself is not generating a lot of news right now, is spend a couple different episodes just explaining some things that everybody could use, everybody could kind of know, and ha handy pieces of information to have uh, to understand the American political system. And hopefully this will help you make better choices uh, come this fall. But the thing that best explains why we have this two-party system which I'm going to turn over to Matt to sort of define, is a, is a fancy term known as Duvigier's Law. So, uh, Matt, do you want to explain who Duvigier was and what his law is? So, yeah, Maurice Duvigier uh, was a French politician and jurist and political scientist. Um, an interesting background, um, he belonged to a fascist party in France at one point and also the Italian Communist Party before later joining the Democratic Party of the Left in the European Parliament. Um, so he got around. Yeah, he did. Um, uh, interesting individual. So he wrote this book, um, which was eventually translated to English in the 50s, um, called um, Political Parties, originally. Um, <laughs> and basically in it, he argued that um, a simple majority, single ballot system favors a two-party system. Um, yeah. In other words, in a system in which sort of one legislative district or a system in which you have legislative districts that um, elect one member to the legislature and in which uh, the district uses a simple majority rule to elect that member, which is what we have here in the United States, incidentally, these systems tend to produce two-party systems. And the reason for this um, is because of this idea of the wasted vote um, that we sometimes hear associated with um, with third parties here in the United mm -hmm. States. Mm -hmm. Basically, this sort of system um, makes it so that whenever you're running for an office or you are voting for someone running for office, um, you don't want to um, basically waste your vote on on a third party. Um, you don't want, and as a politician, you don't want to join a third party that's going to end up sort of splitting, um, splitting by. And so let's just say, for example, the Democratic Party, if they wanted to split into the Progressive Party and the Democratic Party, the Progressive Party being the more liberal one, um, then all of a sudden, 
um, neither one of them have any reasonable shot of getting a majority, which basically ensures that the Republicans would win all of those elections. And so this is why you don't have Democrats running under the progressive party label. And there actually is one um, in some states and why people aren't voting for the progressive party, because they know ultimately this would be um, this would completely undermine um, their electoral chances. Um, and so there's a lot of reasons why we have a two party system in the United States. But the fact uh, but really one of the biggest reasons is because because of the single member plurality district system that we have for electing members of Congress and most of our state legislatures. Yeah. And we and we should know, I mean, like we have had moments, of course, where, you know, third parties emerge and even become kind of important in the U.S. Um, in fact, we have a, a kind of a remnant of this in our Minnesota politics where the Democratic Party is known um, in the state as the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, right? Because um, we once upon a time had a prominent farmer labor movement and they realized, hey, we have enough shared goals. Um, we're just going to split our votes if we don't kind of work together. And so they found a way to unite. Um, it's a couple of interesting notes just to add to this. I mean, one is this doesn't always work as neatly as it does in the United States. Um, yep. And for example, our neighbor to the north has the same kind of system as we do in terms of the first past the post single member district. Um, and yet they do have prominent third parties. I mean, you have a regional party in Quebec, the Quebecois, that wins a lot of seats there. Um, you have the New Democratic Party, which kind of splits the vote of the left with the Liberal Party. Um, similarly, in Britain, right, you have a number of other parties that do win seats, some of them regional, some of them ideological. Um, so it's a it doesn't always work out, work out quite as neatly. But even in those cases, it's very clear for the most part who the two major parties are. And those ones don't change that much. And there is a sense in which you, you know, you do lose some efficacy with your vote, right? When you cast it for these, these third parties, unless they happen to be regional and their, their vote totals are concentrated, like the Scottish national party or the Bloc Quebecois, um, where you can get that. But like with the liberal Democrats or the new Democrats in the UK and Canada respectively, um, you are getting less bang for your buck, so to speak with your vote when you vote for them um, because your vote totals do not get reflected in parliament um, as effectively as if you vote for the conservatives or the liberals. Um, so it's kind of, yeah, it's interesting to see that kind of that kind of divide. One other comment on that. I mean, in Canada, we had this happen in, in the 90s where the the right split, right? You had the, the conserv progressive conservative party, as they were known, which is an odd combo. Um, and they they were seen as insufficiently pure. And so a reform party formed and and basically split the vote of the right. And what happened was predictable, right? That the liberals then won a majority and kept winning. And eventually, after about you know, a couple rounds of this, the right realized like we've got to figure out a way to resolve our differences because without that we're never going to win again and they re reunited as the conservative party and and have subsequently gone on to win some elections all right so andy i have to ask you as our resident comparativist and you made a good point here that other states have slightly different electoral systems but similar enough to the united states that this should cause us some questions why is this so neat in the united states why are we so good at repelling third-party challengers where countries like Canada um, and Britain and others really do allow for the existence of ongoing regional parties or third-party challengers. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me that regional hasn't hasn't happened more here. I mean, it did in earlier parts of our history where you had, you know, you would have regional parties. I mean, you'd have regional candidates who would emerge. So it, it feels like as we become more nationally oriented, um, that that has become less of a, a possibility. Um, so I think that's that's one of the things that's happened with us. Um, 
I think the other thing that matters here is that we don't have a, a parliamentary form of government. And so it is winner takes all in relation to the presidency. Um, and so the difference that makes is that, you know, in, in Canada or in the UK, you can theoretically have, um, you know, governments where, you know, you actually have a coalition, right? So it actually, it does matter if you win 20 seats, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because you might actually be able to form a coalition and demand that you have certain ministerial positions, right? And so, you know, even right now, Canada's, um, you know, liberal parties governing, but they actually don't have a majority, right? Which gives a lot of power to those third parties yep. to decide how Trudeau can function. But because the presidency is decided independently of the, the parliament in our country, um, it, it, I think, has really helped people to think in terms of you have to vote for one of these two parties and anything yep. else is wasting your vote. And so even in 2016, when we had these two historically unpopular presidential candidates, for the most part, people still came home and voted for one of them because it's like, well, I don't like Donald Trump, but I like him better than Hillary Clinton. Or I don't like Hillary Clinton, but I like her better than Donald Trump. So I got to go with that, even though there's a Jill Stein and there's a Gary Johnson and there's people like that hanging out there that you could vote for. And that is yeah. the core um, psychology of this yep. whole process is that um, a, a prospective voter who's trying to think about their interests says, I'd really like Gary Johnson. He fits my <laughs> interests. Well, hold on. Let's just put, there's at least one person out there who says that. There he is. Um, Gary Johnson. Uh, yeah, well, and, and, and presumably close members of his family. But um, he's, they say, uh, I really like I really like to vote for Gary, but I know he has no chance. And even if I vote for him, this is, this is wasting a vote. And so of the two people that have a likely chance of winning, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, I like Donald Trump the least. So I will vote for Hillary Clinton. And this is right. basically boils down to regret avoidance. You're trying, you're voting against the person who is your least favorite candidate, hoping that like, hoping that the more favored of the likely winners is the person who's going to, uh, going to win. And, um, I think you're right. The parliament, the fact we don't have a parliamentary system, that we have a powerful presidency, that we have these single member districts means that parties really consolidate their power, which means parties also have a really strong interest then in making sure that they have safe, reliable seats uh, to populate the legislature with. Which right. leads us to our second oh, term. Can, can I can I jump in before we move oh, on? Oh yeah, please. Subject, uh, sort of fun fact. So the Constitution doesn't actually specify that we have to use single member plurality districts right. to determine who gets selected to the House of Representatives. This is established by law, actually. So Congress, right. if they wanted to, could pass a law that actually changed how members of the House are are elected from within the several states. The only thing the Constitution says is that each state's sort of delegation to the House has to be proportional to their population. Hmm. And we also have Supreme Court cases, of course, that say that districts have to be equal size, whatever. But, but, you know, Congress could change that overnight. But the reason that they won't, and this is something Democrats and Republicans can agree upon, um, (laughs) is that because if they change the system to maybe some sort of proportional system, that would undermine... Um, both of the two major parties. Uh, and of course, Absolutely. there's a vested interest, of course, <laughs> um, in them maintaining this this version of the status quo. Right. As a, um, as an international relations scholar who occasionally indulges in flights of fancy, I like to imagine that if all 50 states simultaneously agreed to do proportional representation for the election of their members of the House of Representatives and the Senate, to imagine what kinds of cockamamie parties would emerge in various states uh, to represent some of this, the obscure interests of those states. Would there be sort of a, um, 
a, a Uber Liberty Party uh, from Michigan uh, seeking to uh, independence for the Upper Peninsula. Um, certainly there would be a pro-independence Texas party. There'd probably be a pro-secessionist California party for that matter. Uh, I don't know. Do you guys have any other favorites? There. Um, well, it, I was just trying to look this up. This would be delicious. It would be so interesting. So, yeah. What's that? The chaos yeah. would be just great. Oh yes, it would. Oh, well, my my favorite was um, and I I was just trying to look this up, and I don't have time to do that. But I'll just make a comment. But um, in 2018, when we were having Minnesota state elections, there were actually two separate parties like advocating for marijuana legalization, and I was like, "What do you guys disagree about? Like, can we get it together and at least have one third party that advocates for this?" Um, I I like joints there. versus bongs. What are we talking I know. about? I, I was like, "What is the what?" Is, why can't you work this out? Come on. <laughs> you seem like you're pretty laid back folks. You should be able to work this out. Like, this is supposed to be one of the perks of your position, guys. <laughs> that you're mellow. Come on. Yeah. And I'll say too, um, before Chris moves on, is that this is why some of the most important political fights are not between the Republican and Democratic parties within states, but within the parties, right? And so, yeah, you know, in Texas, you know, where I grew up, the, you know, what November, you know, the election really wasn't that important um, because it was a foregone conclusion um, for the most part. What well, which which, you know, party was going to win in a given district. What was really important was uh, the primaries um, right. <laughs> who was who was going to win the primary election, you know, within the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. Um, and so that's where a lot of the, the real political fights happen in a lot of states, because so many states now are dominated by one party. Yep. Um, and so a lot of the fights that you would see that, you know, that other countries would have in general elections between a whole bunch of different parties, you're now getting sort of those sort of squabbles and decisions and voting occurring within a particular party, different factions within these sort of big tent parties, which themselves are sort of coalitional, right? Mm -hmm. um, fights about what this party is going to stand for. Um, and so that's why um, primaries are, are really um, a really important part of our electoral system. And one of the criticisms of primaries is that uh, the way we have them set up in the United States, we're inducing uh, the selection of candidates who themselves are more politically extreme. Mm -hmm. And the reason that we're doing that, the reason why most uh, members of Congress are worried not about a primary challenge from the center, but a primary challenge from their own respective fringes, right? Uh, the Republicans are going to be primaried by candidates who are more conservative than they are. Democrats are going to be uh, primaried by candidates who are more liberal than they are, is because of the way we've set up the selection process. The people who vote in primaries tend to be more politically um, active and more extreme than the general voters. But also yeah. uh, the way that the selection process itself functions uh, tends to drive uh, candidates uh, towards their own edges, which leads us, I think, to the second idea, which is that because these two parties really do want to stay in power, they don't want to allow for the rise of third-party candidates. They really both have a simultaneous, almost uh, symbiotic relationship in uh, crafting districts that allow them to retain power. And so uh, both Republicans and Democrats have, have uh, worked pretty hard to make sure that as many seats as possible in the legislature <clears throat> are not really very competitive. And as many perhaps as in the mid 80s, uh, uh, in terms of percentage wise of, of uh, seats in Congress are considered to be very safe Republican seats or very safe Democratic seats. And that 
partially is explained by a process known as gerrymandering. And you may have heard the term gerrymandering. And if you're wondering what that is, uh, I'm going to turn over to Professor Bramson first uh, to explain a little bit about what gerrymandering actually is. Yeah. So, I mean, this term historically comes from uh, a guy named Elbridge Jerry, who at one point served as governor of Massachusetts, as well as vice president of the United States. Um, and he created this district that looked super strange. I mean, it just looked, looked kind of like a salamander. As, and so they called it a gerrymander in the paper and the name stuck. And the let, whole, me pa- let me pause and ask you a quick question. What do you mean when you say he created a district? In other words, he, when he was drawing the different districts, I forget if it was even for a U.S. Congress or state, but um, you know, you're drawing it to say, okay, who, where does this representative, who does this... Pr- what area does this representative represent, right? And there's intuitive ways to do that. You design it around certain, you know, key towns and cities. And there's less intuitive ways, right? Um, and the but the the less intuitive ways might make political sense because you might say, well, what I want to do is make sure I can optimize my own party's, you know, sort of um, efficacy. And so I want to make sure I, you know, compartmentalize all these voters from the other party into one district so that we are we can then win more districts, right? And so. Um, something like that, or, you know, however you can do it to kind of maximize your party's efficiency. So the whole idea is you draw districts that don't make a lot of geographic sense, but make a lot of political sense. And that's the, at the core of that. And so one of, one of the ways we've seen this, I mean, like in the South where I'm, you know, from the United States, um, is you get a lot of these majority minority districts, right? And these were created with the name in the name of, oh, we want to increase minority representation in Congress, which they did, right? But the downside of, of them was often that what you were doing is you were clumping a bunch of um, Democrats together in the same district and then allowing Republicans to then win most of the seats, right? So mm-hmm. in my home state of South Carolina, there's two seats that are usually represented by African-American Democrats and the rest of the seats are usually represented by Republicans, right? Um, and so that's increased minority representation. It's also made it hard for the Democrats to win very many seats in South Carolina. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's a process. There's two uh, so basically uh, techniques uh, associated with gerrymandering. And the one you just described is called packing. So basically the districts are drawn in such a way as yep. to pack all the Democrats in South Carolina uh, into these two districts, or as many of them as you possibly can, knowing that those districts will be reliably Democratic, but the Democrats will not be able to assemble enough uh, members of the legislature to outweigh the number of Republicans right. in the legislature. The other uh, tech tactic is cracking. Uh, Matt, can you explain what cracking is? Yeah, cracking has to do with uh, splitting a party's um, strength between two or more districts. Um, and a lot of times, uh, really cracking and pra- packing to are used within the same state, right? So mm-hmm. you're trying to basically decrease the efficiency of of one party's um, sort of de- decrease the efficiency of one party. So like, d- basically find a way to, you know, pack all of their their voters within a few districts, and then the mm-hmm. spread out your own party strength across as many other districts as possible. And so what you have is you have the creation of these sort of safe seats for both sides. Um, but if you're um, a Republican um, that's in control of the process, you're going to try to create more safe seats for Republicans. If you're the Democrat, you're going to try to provide for more safe seats for the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And all of this is driven by the fact that over time, politicians have observed that people who tend to live near each other tend to vote like each other. And so we can, or at least we can spike, we can kind of make some predictions about um, places in the country where there are pockets of Democratic voters, pockets of Republican voters, and we can draw districts around those kinds of things uh, for um, 
for predictive purposes. So for example, let me just give this, sketch this out mathematically, and um, I'm wishing we had a video component to this, Sam, but we'll su I'll suffice this simple example. <laughs> Imagine a hypothetical state um, where uh, basically there was 50% Republicans, 50% Democrats, and um, they were even, even maybe relatively re uh, evenly distributed across the state. Now, normally, if they just had elections, you'd have a, a legislature of 50% Republicans, 50% Democrats. But you could imagine that one party has a chance to draw the map in such a way that they say, okay, we're going to have one district that's almost 100% Republicans. So that's going to put a lot of Republicans in that district. We're, gonna, we're just going to acknowledge that's going to be a Republican seat. But that means that a whole bunch of Republicans have now been taken out of the state and put in this one district. The right. rest of the state now is now majority Democrat with with a substantial Republican minority. And we're going to draw every other district in that state in such a way that it's 55, 45 Democrats to Republicans. And now we have a legislature that's almost entirely dominated by Democratic ideas and Democratic votes, um, even though the state is really supposed to be 50-50. And that's yeah. really what's happening with gerrymandering. And one of the reasons why this has become an issue for the courts so um, this is the way we should probably wrap this up. But this idea of gerrymandering has been challenged recently in the courts. Um, and I don't know, I don't remember who I was supposed to turn to next for this, but what um, what can we learn from recent court cases about gerrymandering? Uh, okay, I'll take a, try to take a crack at this. So the court has basically said, and then there have been laws that have backed this up, that um, all of the uh, legislative districts have to be of the same size. They have to represent mm -hmm. equally sized populations, which makes sense, right? But yep. of course, if you're going to make the cracking and packing scheme work and you're going to have equally sized districts, then that's why you have to have these really bizarre shaped districts that sort of reach into certain um, sort of, um, you know, areas to sort of clump together partisans or to split them, right? Um, so you have that set of cases that's been in place for a while. Um, of course, what you have then is when, well, we should back up. We should say that the, the legislative district lines, not only for state legislatures, but for the U.S. House districts within particular states, these lines have to be redrawn roughly every 10 years, depending on population right. changes. Mm -hmm. And this coincides with the U.S. Census. And then as states lose population or gain population or as populations shift within the state, such as the increasing size of um, urban areas, for example, you have to redraw the legislative district lines to make sure that all the districts are the same size. Whenever you have the, whenever the lines have to be redrawn, this is a golden opportunity for whichever party controls sort of the state um, legislature or the governor, depending on the state, gives them a golden opportunity to redraw the lines to give their to give the majority party a partisan advantage. So some states have. Um, given the legislatures um, this role. For some states, it's governors. Some states have tried to take the politics out of it by having these independent commissions. Um, the point is that um, none of these, you know, have really been effective at completely removing politics from the redistricting process. Mm -hmm. Inevitably, the courts get involved. And these court cases sort of originate in the state court systems, um, but oftentimes they wind up before um, they wind up in federal court. And in 2019, um, so basically 10 months ago, June 2019, the Supreme Court issued a major decision on a pair of related cases. Um, and basically what happened is there was a case out of Maryland and then another case out of North Carolina. 
Um, in North Carolina, the court threw out a map that hurt Democrats. And in Maryland, uh, another court threw out a map that hurt Republicans. The Supreme Court took both these cases together and they basically said, no longer is the federal court system going to adjudicate in mm -hmm. gerrymandering cases. Previously, the court had said that racial gerrymandering is, is no longer allowable, but had said that partisan gerrymandering is okay. And of course, you have all these cases swirling around, and there is a desire across several states to have the federal Supreme Court step in and adjudicate in this. And basically, in a 5-4 decision, the conservatives versus the liberals um, on the Supreme Court basically said, and John Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote from the majority, said that it is not the job of the Supreme Court to basically adjudicate in an issue that is in a, in a decision that will inevitably be political. You can't take the politics out of it. And it's not the job of the court to basically clean up the mess that the states have created. Gerrymandering is unfortunate, he said, um, and it's unfair, but it's not something that the Supreme Court is authorized to deal with um, either uh, in the Constitution or by law. Um, and so basically what we have now is it's, it's going to be a free for all. <laughs> um, and it's really going to boil down to um, whoever controls um, the state legislatures, the governors, and um, especially the state Supreme courts. Well, and this is, well, it's, uh, it's, it's really tricky because I mean, even when you think about nonpartisan ways, I mean, you always have this question of, okay, but how do you really keep it nonpartisan, right? I mean, how do you make sure, you know, you can, you can come up with formulas, right. That you would use, but who gets to do the formula and how do you make sure that person doesn't have leanings um, and that the formula is truly unbiased, right? So it's, it's, it's tricky. I mean, it's devilishly tricky to, to solve. I mean, if you want a nice visual on this, since we can't give you a visual on this podcast, I really like um, CGP Gray's sort of take on um, YouTube and you can go on and Google this like G CGP Gray, um, you know, on gerrymandering. And it's, it's a nice visual to sort of see the problem and kind of why it's so hard to solve. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, that's, that's really the sticking point is there's contention, um, that you can do this in a fair and sort of scientific process. Um, but really that just hides the fact that there are basic assumptions you have to make on what constitutes the most fair way of distributing people in districts, right? So do right. you do you measure fairness by the compactness of a district, um, by its competitiveness, uh, by its sort of proportional composition, um, giving each side sort of the same number of, of seats according to the partisan composition of the state? I mean, there's a lot of different ways to determine what counts as fair. And typically, either both sides are going to have lots of reasons they can trot out to say that their particular scientific model is going to create a fair distribution. But really, um, you know, and I think this gets back to what Robert says, you can't take the politics out of this. Um, you you can't expect that the court, which is unelected, is going to be able to make um, a value judgment that's truly neutral. And so he says, let's leave this up to the state legislatures and to the states to decide how to do this. And really, at the end of the day, if you're angry about how, you know, the state legislature drew the, drew the map, you can vote those people out of office um, in the end if they if they really screw up royally um, and tick off enough people in the state. Um, that assumes, of course, that people are paying that close of attention. But um, but he says it's not the the role of the court to try to make that sort of political decision. So make of that what you will. Yeah, the other thing I would just add to that is, I mean, I think this is comes back to the whole discussion about our our legislative system, which is first past the post, and you know, single member district, and this is just fundamentally a problem with this. I mean. Um, better systems are where you incorporate some or all 
of the system being proportional representation. And so I'm a big fan of Germany's where they have both single member districts. So you still get that personal representative and proportional representation that makes the vote totals uh, or the, the representation in, in the parliament look like the actual vote totals people are casting. Um, and you mm -hmm. don't get these kind of weird results we get with gerrymandering. It really, it mitigates gerrymandering, gerrymandering because basically it doesn't do the parties any good. I mean, they're not going to get more representation. They might get more of one kind of representative, but then the, the proportional part of the process will even it out and make the vote look like the, mm -hmm. the kind of actual vote total. So there are ways to fix it, but it would require amending our constitution, and that's really hard. And again, the Republicans and Democrats have no incentive to do that. Well, that's the point I think is really you said there are ways to fix this and there are ways to fix this, but they're not really available to us for the same, for the divergers, divergers law that we've already talked about. Right. Both yep. Republicans and Democrats have a vested interest in keeping the system the way it currently is um, and keeping as many districts as non-competitive as possible. So yep. they're not going to do anything to upset that, including getting rid of gerrymandering, which is why not only is 2020 a really uh, contentious year because of the presidential election, it's also incredibly contentious because we're, we're in the process of a U.S. census. And uh, there's been a lot of debate already about how the census is conducted because that determines um, how many seats a state gets and states can, can gain or lose seats depending on the population changes. But then uh, legislatures within those states can use that information to redraw districts and Republican-controlled states will redraw districts to benefit Republicans, and democratically-controlled states will redraw districts to control to you know to uh, support Democrats. And this, the federal court has ruled, and I think Roberts has a good case here uh, that this is not in the interest of the federal government to declare uh, districts unconstitutional. That's a state-level issue, um, and so from this perspective, we're kind of stuck with this system, mm -hmm. barring some massive public outcry that would actually mobilize voters. Yep. Yeah. And I think in some ways this, I mean, I would need to look into this more. In some ways this might even have a bigger impact upon, um, upon sort of state level politics and state legislatures, perhaps in some ways mm -hmm. than, than uh, sort of the federal level. Um, there's the conventional political wisdom holds that um, gerrymandering um, and this redistricting process has actually resulted in greater polarization in Congress. But there's been some interesting um, research that some political scientists have done that basically show that partisan redistricting has a pretty modest effect on polarization mm -hmm. in Congress. And so Republicans who represent um, these swingier districts um, tend to vote in a very similar way to Republicans who represent safe seats. And this is the same side. This is also true of the Democratic Party. Um, and and it also, you know, and and also if, you know, we were somehow to magically wave a wand and create a fair system across all 50 states, it wouldn't create a drastically different sort of uh, partisan composition in Congress. Um, so mm -hmm. so it's a problem, um, but it's not maybe quite problematic in the way that it is commonly portrayed might be a way to think about it. Well, and the other thing I'll just add to that is like, I mean, even when you have a better system, right. And I give a shout out to Germany earlier and I do like their system, but that creates some problems, right? I mean, mm -hmm. one of the issues Germany's got now is that they have a party of the far right and a party of the far left. No one wants to work with either of them. Um, neither of them really want to work with anybody else. Um, and so instead of having these people within your party, as currently we have within the Republican and Democratic parties, you have them outside and eating up seats in parliament 
and being totally non-functional and having no real incentive to to cooperate. Um, so is that better? I mean, there's some things I like about Germany's system, but but right now they're getting it pretty gummed up, right? Because basically they're having this situation where their equivalent of the, their big tent Republican and Democratic parties are having to work together in a, a national unity kind of government. And that's not great, right? Um, so, you know, I mean, any system, when you have deep divisions, it's going to have real problems. Um, so it's right. not all about our our system. I think that's a very fair point. Yeah. And, and you know, the the question is where in, in a system in which you have a great deal of diversity um, and division, the question is the question is where is the compromising going to have to occur? Where yep. is the deal making going to occur? So is it going to occur within Congress itself in the creation of coalitions, or is it going to happen within the respective parties, um, in, like in the primary elections? Right. So, um, so where is that sort of coalition building going to occur? Um, mm -hmm. Is it going to occur? within parties or across parties. And both of them have advantages and disadvantages. The United States, of course, you know, can get very gummed up when Republicans control one, one chamber and Democrats control the other, which is what we have now. Right. Um, but you also have periodic times in which one party controls both the House and the Senate and the White House. And then clearly that party is in control. Um, and that makes it more clear um, to voters uh, about who is responsible um, mm -hmm. for the, the actions the government has taken. Uh, because there's one party that's clearly in charge and that makes sort of accountability um, an easier an easier task right versus if you have um, a coalition composed of multiple parties it's hard to know who to assign blame which party to 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 punish um, if something goes wrong yeah well guys this is fascinating but ultimately kind of depressing uh we're gonna have to come up oh, with uh some uh some more redeeming features of our electoral system uh, in future episodes. Hopefully you found this helpful uh, as we have uh, breaking news or, or um, things that we can provide uh, analysis to uh, in the electoral process uh, for the next few weeks. We'll check back in with you. But in the intervening times, especially as coronavirus continues to dominate the headlines, uh, we will probably interject a few more uh, episode, or, uh, segments like this where we break down some of the need to knows leading into the election. So look for those in future episodes. Uh, uh, we're going to sign off for now, but uh, thanks for listening. On behalf of my colleagues uh, here at Bethel University um, and everywhere we are, um, <laughs> Bethel in our hearts, I suppose, um, you've been listening to Election Shock Therapy. You can always get a hold of us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Uh, you can also get a hold of us at channel3900 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, on behalf of my colleagues, thanks for listening. And until you hear from us again, go Royals. <laughs>